Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Joey Sturge's Tones. Creating unique audio tools for musicians and producers everywhere. Unleash your creativity with Joey Sturge's Tones. Visit joeysturgestones.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joe Wanasek, and A.L. Levy. Hello. Welcome hey. to the Joey Sturges Forum Podcast. Hey there. How's it going? It's going pretty good. I'm Joey Sturgis, and that was A.L. Levy, and Joel Wanasek is somewhere in here. Where are you I'm at? I'm hiding. Oh, okay. I don't want to talk today. I'm kidding. Well, then shut the hell up. <laughs> <laughs> then why are you talking? Yeah. Because. <laughs> so, have you guys ever seen this action movie that's about to come out? It's filmed from the point of view of the character in the movie, and it's uh, continuously shot. Oh, is it based on the video that came out about a, a year or two ago where the one guy shot it with a GoPro and yes, he's yes. running around from rooftop to rooftop and hanging yep. off of cars and all I think that, that was the um the work in concept or whatever. Like just they wanted to see if that was gonna be something that people liked and it went viral and then that was the catalyst for all right we can make a movie like this and i saw the trailer for it man i wish i could figure out the name of the movie it's awesome (laughs) yeah i know exactly what you're talking about the trailer is him and another soldier guy in a building that they're clearing where they're fighting like 20 different guys and you're jumping from floor to floor right yeah yeah i've seen it it looks phenomenal now when you think about like movie production a lot of things get accomplished with the cameras because they can change the camera angles and change the mood and stuff. But it's interesting to me because they don't have that option. Like the camera is just on the, it's from the dude's perspective. So you're always seeing what he sees. So in order to make the movie continually interesting, they have to throw him through a variety of situations and, and, there's always like action going on. So I, I feel like it's going to be pretty action packed. It is an action movie. Yeah. It's called Hardcore, by the way. Just found it. Yeah. I like movies like that that take a very simple concept and basically play it out to the nth degree on a low budget, like The Raid, for instance. Yeah. It was filmed in Indonesia for under a million dollars and is just nonstop amazing brutality for 90 minutes. Sweet. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, the raid is fantastic. Uh, I judge a movie on the amount of explosions. <laughs> I don't think there's any explosions, but it doesn't matter. Point is, it was shot for really, really little, but the creativity of the director makes it feel like a high-budget, on-cocaine Hollywood action movie. Sweet. You and guys s- like uh, B-movie type stuff? Not much. No. <laughs> no. Like Evil Dead and shit like that? Uh, I guess if I can approach it from a comedic point. Well, yeah, that's half the fun, though. If they're trying to be serious, but it's actually funny, then yeah, it's pretty... That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I can get into that stuff sometimes, but I don't like horror movies very much. I don't like campy movies or zombie movies too much yeah me neither i mean what yeah what i'm talking about now is just when you get you know the idea that creativity wins the day really like with this director that you're bringing up or the guy who shot the raid or even blair witch project that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago that's just showing how skill and creativity can supersede any budget 
you know, or any real technical limitation. Yeah, I think that's cool. Yeah. It applies to audio as well. I mean, that's what we talk about all the time. You have a guy with a million dollar Neve board or something, and he's just not creative. His stuff sounds stupid versus a kid in a bedroom who has all the ideas and all the time in the world to do them. Well, you know, in studio world, I don't know how much this happens anymore, but when I was a lot younger, I remember my studio was competing against really, really big studios where local bands would go in and pay like $2,000 for the weekend and do an entire album because somebody big recorded there. And it always came out sounding like total shit. And they would go there because huge, amazing sounding records were done there. And they couldn't understand why if they were in the same room as Aerosmith or some you know, somebody huge like that or corn right. or that they sounded like shit. And it's like, dude, it's not the gear, it's the care put into your record. You're doing it on off hours with an intern who doesn't give a shit. What, what do you think is going to happen? Well, is it just me or does it seem like every studio has recorded Aerosmith at some point? <laughs> well, they have made like 72 albums. Oh my God. Well, yeah. If you think about it. No, no, I'm kidding. I think they're on their uh, second album. I know like four or five studios, like right off the top of my head, I can recall their pages where like Aerosmith is in their client list. And I'm just like, <laughs> man, everybody's fucking done Aerosmith. Well, or has Aerosmith fucking done everyone? <laughs> <laughs> Probably the latter. Well, just think about being in a band since, what, 1970 or something, and really yeah. only having a few years off. And they broke up for a very little while, but they've been active pretty much the entire time. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start a grindcore band, and okay. we're going to play for like the next 50 years. We're going to go record every year in a different state at a different studio. Hey, I know where we can start. Where? Dave Odero. Our guest today. That's a great idea. He's really good at uh, recording grind bands. And I think he's in Colorado. Is that right? He is in Colorado. And I think that might be aiming a little high for grindcore, though. I think his mixes and stuff sound a little too good for that. But why not start off with a bang, right? Yeah, he's yeah. in Colorado. <laughs> I met him when I was on tour with my band and we were traveling around with Cephalic Carnage back in like. 2007, I believe. We stopped by his place back then. He was in a warehouse that he shared with them. And I believe that he has since moved out of there to his own facility. But that's all stuff we can ask him about. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I just want to mention the fact that he's worked with one of the bands that kind of influenced the start of my whole career really was cephalic carnage i know that sounds hilarious but they were so good yeah they were really good man and i was so fascinated and that's what really got me interested i was playing drums trying to learn how to do that kind of stuff on drums which led me to you know wanting to record drums and make my drums sound like that so what year did that band come out cephalic carnage i think has been around since the 2000s for early 2000s yeah dude i feel old because like i missed the whole 2000s like death core metal whatever the fuck I, i'm like og death metal like to me death metal's like 1991 cannibal corpse or napalm death or uh morbid angel dude <laughs> well cephalic carnage are from the second wave of legitimate death metal bands that I first heard about them around the same time that I heard about Necrophagist, for instance. And Yeah, I kind of ignored that whole thing. I don't know. I was too, like, 
I don't know. That was a different time for me. I was like into prog metal and weird shit like that. Oh, but, God. <laughs> but when I was like 13, man, in like the 90s, it was all just death metal, like fucking entombed, napalm death, shit like that. Well, you that. missed out on a good era because those, yeah, some of those I songs agree. are fucking cool, man. Uh, especially the productions. Honestly, man, I think that that's the golden period for the genre. I think the early stuff is cool because it's classic, but I feel like the genre came into its own between like 99 and 2006, maybe. And yeah. since then, it's just kind of been spinning its wheels trying to find the next place to go and it hasn't figured it out yet. Yeah, but. and Relapse was, I mean, Relapse was coming yeah. up. Oh, I remember Relapse. Yeah, let's bring him on. Yeah. Hey, Dave, how you doing? I'm doing all right, man. How are you guys? Fantastic. Doing pretty good. Welcome to the show. Thanks, um, man. Just want to say, uh, to anyone who's listening and doesn't know, Dave, I kind of met Dave on Ultimate Metal Forum, I think it was. Do you remember what year at all? Uh... 1896. Uh, that was yeah, a good sounds year. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> Dave joined in 2005, and the reason I know this was because I looked it up this morning. My background checked your ass. Got my you. FBI file there. Yep. Let's not talk about that on air. Um, it's definitely been a long time. I mean, it's uh, you know, good old any steep forums. There's, there's uh, so much has come out of those. It's kind of ridiculous. But yeah, uh, it's awesome. Man. Yeah, that's kind of like, I feel like where a lot of us got our start in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That was like the mecca back then, especially when Andy was active in it. Because he did ditch out, I think, in 2006 or 2007. But yeah, there was a yeah. long time where he was just on there helping. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it was, he wasn't, you know, like like the rest of us. I mean, I that was like my homepage for a, for a long time. I just checked it every day. I mean, uh, you know, it was like religious kind of thing. But uh, yeah, it was cool. I mean, I was already recording and had been, you know, like commercially essentially for a while, but there wasn't much information uh, around there for, you know, especially for heavier stuff back in the day. And it was, it, it's, I mean, it's where I first learned about like pushing an amp with a tube screamer, which is like, such a basic thing for any kind of, you know, articulate heavy music these days. It's, it's almost ridiculous to think that I was like charging money before I knew some of these things. <laughs> so with that in mind, when did you get started? Uh, let's see. We can count backwards. I mean, I probably started like, recording bands for you know hard cash when i was like 17 or 18 and i'm old as hell now i'm 34 so uh hey so, a so long am time i ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're not that old yeah no we're doing all right so have you ever had another job i was a bus boy once when i was in high school yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was it i mean i went like I, I you know i did like a couple of like small small time jobs like you know bus boy and some some audit stuff when i was in school and Pretty much right out of school, I, I kind of had this lined up and ready to go, and that was it. Well, let's just say that that's awesome. How did you get that going? You know, I, I started by recording my own bands, you know, like earlier on, even like on a, on a four-track and stuff like that, just for fun. Like, you know, had a four-track. So, so my brother was a musician. He's older than I am. He's, he's six years old than I am. And when I was like nine, he conned me into like using all of my allowance money to help him buy a four-track. <laughs> and I was young and impressionable, so I, I did it. And then he moved on, and I mean, he still plays music a little bit now, but you know, not professionally or or even 
you know, more than once every few months. So I kind of just inherited this four track and I was like, oh, that's cool. I was playing in punk bands and stuff like that and didn't have any mic stands. I had to like tape mics to the ceiling and hang them down like over my drum set, you know, to record practices and stuff like that. And Dude, this is exactly how I got started. Really? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Literally one day it was, it was like, oh, this is pretty fun. Hey, maybe I should like do this as a job. And I was like 16 or something, you know, and I had no idea, you know, other other kids were not probably really thinking about that kind of stuff at the time. But you know, I didn't really have any gear. And I and then I was like, oh, OK, I'm going to start taking this more seriously. So saving up cash from my, you know, busboy job, buying like amounts of gear, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. And then like when I actually turned serious was uh, I had a little bit of like money set aside for college and started looking at options for this kind of stuff and looked at full sale. I actually went down and did like a full sale tour a long time ago. And uh, before that, I was kind of like, well, you know what, before I like drop all this cash on school, I'm going to take a little bit of this money and throw it in some gear and kind of just start doing it on my own and, and see how it goes, you know. So I took a couple thousand dollars and I bought like, you know, two ADAT machines. This was like before it was really feasible to do it like directly to a DAW. So I started tracking ADATs. I had this like old crappy 16-channel Fostec board I bought at like a pawn shop for like 300 bucks. You know, by the time I started doing that, recording my own stuff, and this, you know, I would track to ADATs and then dump through Lightpipe like all the way into, uh, what was it? I can't even remember what version. Digital Performer or something? No, I mean, it, it was Cubase. Oh, okay. It was, bef- it was before Nuendo was even a thing. Because I, like a lot of guys, switched oh. to Nuendo when it came out and then switched back to Cubase once they kind of like shifted those. But it was it was a long time ago. I would dump all in through this like MoTube piece uh, that I had and, and mix in the box. And by the time I started doing that and got things sounding okay, at least, you know, okay for the time, I did the full sale thing. I was like, man, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't really know if I need to do this. I had a couple other friends that had gone that route and they're like, man, I, you know, I paid so much money for this dumb piece of paper and never once has anyone asked me for it or has it been useful at all. So, so I kind of just said, screw it. And, uh, just started working with bands. And then that, and like, I just had a job from that day forward, I guess, you know, that's awesome. That's, that's very similar to my story. And I think a lot of people get started this way, but one thing I wanted to sort of focus on was the fact that you said you didn't really have a whole lot of other jobs besides this. And that's been the same for me. I had, I had like one other job. I, I was a, yeah. like a paper boy and I worked in a computer shop and that was it. I didn't ever yeah. had to go to like McDonald's or, you know, no. whatever the fuck. Yep. So you guys just had your metal cred destroyed, man. I at least worked as a grave digger for a <laughs> summer. <laughs> Did you really? Wow. Yeah, it was awesome. I reset yeah. headstones. That's shit. pretty metal. <laughs> The things you learn, damn. I just wanted to throw that out there because I'm like the least metal guy here on the chat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've never been a, a grave digger. Yeah, your creepy <laughs> points just went up a little. I have a question for you. So how long did it take before you actually started to make money at this? And, you know, keeping in mind that there's different time periods for sure and the music industry is always changing. But, you know, how, how did it go for you? I, you know, it was pretty quick, I guess. I mean, I, I started... And this is kind of, this is like how it's easy to get going in a field like this where you, where it's tough to make money, especially at the beginning. I started when I was so young, I didn't have a lot of commitments, you know, like I literally was recording albums in my mom's basement for like two or three years. I think, Joe, you did the same thing from what I remember too. And like, even after I moved out, I still had a studio in my mom's basement. I was like 
recording Cephalic Carnage in my mom's basement <laughs> when I was like 18 or 19, you know? And, uh, and so it's really easy because I didn't have a lot of bills, you know? I had an apartment that I split with one dude, so it was like a couple hundred bucks. And it was, it's just easy. I didn't really need to make that much money. And I charge a pretty modest rate. And it was like, especially for heavy music, there were no other studios in town that even knew what to do with that kind of stuff. And they were all like the old model, like big bucks, you know, expensive hours, engineer that's never heard your music before. You'd book the studio rather than booking the engineer slash producer. None of these guys actually were that, you know, they were just like day jobbing it. And yeah. so that's a totally wrong way to go for heavy music. I mean, really, it's the wrong way to go for any kind of music. You know, you need to work with someone that's interested in your music particularly not just like call a studio like like you're you know booking a plumber or something like that and that's like what people were doing forever they would just call one of the studios in town and go in and like record all their crap live and it would sound horrible and i was more interested in like trying to get as close to other like releases in the genre that that uh, i could you know that i could at the time which which probably wasn't too close but that's actually a really common thread among lots of our guests on the show who came up through the early yeah. 2000s that they were the only game in town for this style of music pretty much i mean it's definitely not that way now i you know i still get messages and emails uh from people asking me advice coming up as a you know trying to be a metal guy metal producer mixer whatever and I, you know, I give them what advice I can, but it's such a different thing than, you know, I'm a fucking dinosaur compared to a lot of these guys. So <laughs> things are just very different now. So, you know, I, I tell them at first and foremost, you know, just buy some gear and start doing it, man, and, and see how you do. Nice. Well, I guess that's the one thing that hasn't changed, that you can't get anywhere without making that initial investment in yep. yourself gear-wise yep. and yep. time-wise. It's just like any any art form, you know, if it's something that you really care about and, and really want to do, then you'll show the drive yourself, you know. Every once in a while, I see guys kind of like waiting for it to happen or waiting to go to school to learn this stuff. And I'm like, especially now, I mean, it's even a hundred times more accessible now than it was when I was started. Like, what are you waiting for? Just like start start doing it, you know? I mean, you can get a, a, a recording set up for dirt cheap. You know, everyone has a computer that's capable of recording this stuff. You used to have like, you used to have to have a really super powerhouse computer to even do anything. But now like everyone's like five-year-old laptop can record and mix audio. Two weeks ago... Or sorry, a month ago, I just bought a, like a Behringer foreign interface with like mics, XLR, the whole nine yards yeah. here so I could do a little video setup. Yeah. And it was like 150 bucks <laughs> yeah. or something like that. It was like nothing. Yeah. I remember I f remember my first M-Audio Delta 1010 or my first four track, which was like 1300 yeah. bucks to do four channels of bullshit <laughs> yeah. on a mini disc. Yeah. It's super accessible now. That crashed every minute in 30 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> Oh God, I got a Delta 1010 as well. I don't think I recorded a successful minute of audio with that thing. Dude, that was the shit back in the day, like 2000, that in Cool Edit Pro. Yeah. Man, it crashed my rig so many times. That's that is actually why I switched over was because I that Delta 1010 kept blue screening me. That's crazy. Like I never had it crash in like five years that I used Ugh. it. Dude, I could not, like when I say I didn't get a minute recorded with it i mean i did not get a minute recorded <laughs> with it. it so so yeah i got a new computer so let's talk about some actual music stuff um i had i had one question before we moved on if that's okay hey dave so i imagine a lot of people listening to this are probably close to or in a similar situation as you back then which was 
recording in your basement at your parents' house or whatever. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, what? how long did it take before you were out of there? And, you know, how did you actually handle the initial investment involved in making it happen? Uh, you know, I, I went the route where when I was doing it in the basement there, I, I didn't really speak spend any money on construction or or sound control or any kind of treatment or anything like that. So when I when I moved out, it was more about like trying to put on a more professional front, trying not to like drive so far for me. And I was only like 30 or 40 minutes, but I was tired of it. Uh, so I, I just found essentially like some office space in a warehouse and uh, kind of just moved in. I think I had like a roll of carpet padding in the corner in the drum room. I mean, nothing, you know, this is like only like a, a minor step up in professional uh, professionalness. <laughs> so I, I, I just took small steps, you know, it wasn't really a big investment. It was just a lease. And, you know, I think I did it month to month and it wasn't a big deal. And it wasn't until, it's actually been a long time now, but I moved around a few different places. I was in one spot for a while. Actually, did you know, I painted and tried to make it cool and tried to do a little bit of treatment at one point. Actually got robbed at that spot, which really sucked. Like got a call from the cops on a Saturday night and uh, place had been broken into, lost a lot of stuff, like probably about 10 grand worth of things. Plus a uh, computer with, you know, probably six weeks of unfinished projects on it oh that my I god have a backup of so that's a lot of re-recording Jeez. I had to do for free and like on top of you know replacing gear I mean my monitors were stolen you know both monitor my audio monitors and like my you know flat screens that I just bought was so stoked on <laughs> <laughs> did those guys ever get caught no nothing nothing happened I did a police report man but they didn't they gave no fucks you know I mean it, it was a small small fry to them yeah I try and call and follow up and I like literally wouldn't even get a call back I mean it was just like I knew pretty close that like, okay, this stuff is just gone. I'm never going to see it again. Uh, I just need to move forward. And honestly, it was it was actually good in a lot of ways. Forced me to use a, a bunch of different gear, and I had been kind of stuck in my little circle of gear, specifically my monitors. And I was on a Mackie HRA24s, and as soon as I moved away from them, I realized how much I hate those monitors, like <laughs> with a passion. Those are the ones that are really <laughs> mid scooped, right? They, yeah, they. I mean, I didn't really know that oh, yeah. at the time. You know, I, yeah. I, I bought into the uh, the marketing that shows us like incredibly flat frequency response, and I was like, wow, science, cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and I was young and inexperienced and didn't realize that marketing is just that marketing. But I, I literally moved to a pair of speakers that I built myself. Uh, I had actually ordered them like right before the studio got broken into the hundred dollar kit of unpowered speakers and I ran them off like a just a, a regular stereo head you know with the EQ set flat it actually worked on those for like two or three years and they sounded great they sounded 10 times better than my Mackies and I had mix, mixing uh, mixes translating better immediately and that plus a few of the things like jumped up my product like a pretty decent amount I was real stoked on it so you know it happened for a reason I don't, I don't know if I really believe in that crap but uh it, it worked it worked <laughs> out in this instance you know things got a lot better so well you uh you turned it into a good yeah. thing by the way did you hear what happened to Morris sound a few years ago that was the, wa- the oh, water yeah, the I water thing that. is that you're talking about the cleaning lady or no I'm it- no they got robbed and cleaned out oh okay yeah they got robbed there what was a there's another studio that like a cleaning lady like hit a water valve and like flooded the place over the weekend or something i was thinking that was more sound but that might have been somewhere else but i heard of people's studios getting flooded in the hurricane in new yeah. york a couple of years no, back. Yeah, I remember that but too. yeah and morris sound they cleaned out studio b 
and got away with like six figures worth of gear. Uh, but the guy got caught okay. in a warehouse. Yeah, he had it all in a warehouse in like South Carolina, yeah. I believe. Sweet. That's so. pretty awesome. I mean, they, they you know, yeah. cops might take a hundred grand a little more seriously than yeah. like easily 10. But <laughs> well, I don't think that was their only score either. I think it was a pretty pro uh, deal. Okay, yeah. But anyways, let's talk about some sound. How do you get your sound? I want to start with drums because this is the reason why I got into all this crap. So I was listening to Cephalic Carnage back in the day and I was a drummer and I was mm -hmm. in a, a grindcore band or whatever you want to call it. And we looked up to them and we looked up to your productions and we were just dissecting them like all the time. It's like we'd every weekend, you know, all we would do <laughs> is stay up until three or four a.m. listening to Cephalic Carnage and be like, man, that fucking snare drum and that, you know, this and that. <laughs> so, yeah, how how did you do that? And what is your approach to getting drums to sound so natural but make them work so well? Uh, You know, I mean, back then, my, I didn't really have an approach, man. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just kind of like flying by seat of my pants you know everyone uh i had a uh, i'm working uh, on a project right now f uh called cobalt on profound lore and chris the owner of profound lore actually flew out uh last weekend for a couple of days near the end of the mix to hang out and he was talking about that and he's like man you know lucid interval is still my favorite and i think a lot of people think that and that i mean i was i think 19 when i was recording that and i literally had no <laughs> idea what i was doing i mean i was just like and for drums, I think all of you guys would probably agree, a whole lot of drums comes down to the player. And uh, John oh, yeah. Murray Manna just like knows how to hit drums well and make them sing. I mean, it's a huge difference. I mean, even down to stick selection and like where you hold your sticks and the amount of weight you can put into a drum. And he had experience back then as far as like, you know, this is how I like to tune my drums. I don't even think I was drum dialing back then. I may have been or tuning drums, you know, so a lot of that probably had to do with him. I had my kind of placements, you know, and, and my, my mics that I probably still use. But a lot of it was, was a drummer and his help with tuning up sounds in those early days. And just trying to go for something really clear. That's like what my goal, especially with Cephalic in the beginning, is there are other stuff. I actually kind of like the vibe on the album, Exploring Your Function, um, but before the one that I did. But it is, it's just kind of a mess. Like, it's cool, it, and th and that when the music kicks in, it's just so like crunchy and distorted that it it sounds heavy as hell. But you, I mean, you have no idea what the hell they're doing, and part of that's because yeah. they probably rushed <laughs> it, they rushed the tracking, and it wasn't real tight, and the production just kind of like goes, you know, and and, <laughs> and it's, it sounds. I mean, it sounds sweet, but it's not that you can't even know what they're doing. And right around one time when I started working with them, they were getting more technical, and and the focus is on like kind of the opposite of that. So. So, I mean, when I listen to it, I hear it as like a little bit sterile, but especially for the time that clarity was something that people weren't really accustomed to. And that's kind of like, that's still kind of my game these days. Like I focus a lot on vibe and stuff like that. That's another area that I think is kind of missing, especially in like modern mixes these days. The vibe's not always there. It's kind of, it gets a little cookie cutter at times. So I really try and push the vibe, but I'm all about having it, everything nice and clear. I mean, I think you should be able to hear everything that's going on and nice and big and, you know, like large sounding. So I don't really know, man. I mean, I, I and I kind of just flying by the seat of my pants. Well, what about now? Now I take a, I, I take a little more like, you know, uh, studied approach to it, I suppose. 
but but a lot of it still relies on the drummer you know i mean as far as like the heavy fast stuff that people know me for now probably it's kind of moved over to the cattle stuff i've done and again it's like dave mcgraw's another like beast of a drummer i mean his stuff you know like we do we do some edits on those albums but i could probably go without the edits and it wouldn't really sound that much different you know i just want to chime in on that man like i think with the super extreme stuff a lot of people who have never recorded a phenomenal drummer don't understand how much of an impact that oh, makes huge. on yeah. the overall yeah. mix yeah you can't negate that i mean on other genres you can get away with a lot more Flop. fakery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You because it's easier to fix. But these really, really great extreme metal drummers, I mean, that's what they sound yeah. like. You maybe you add a kick sample and a little reinforcement here and there. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what you see is what you get pretty much. And they have to approach their instrument the way an athlete approaches their sport. Mm-hmm or their, their discipline. And you don't really find that too much in the other subgenres. not, not like you do in the extreme stuff. So I think that it's one of those things, just like with vocalists, nobody really gets how amazing it is to work with a vocalist who's amazing until you have one walk in your studio. It's almost like that for every musician, you know, an experienced guy, someone that's like reached a level of success more than likely probably already has elements of their own sound. And it comes from it comes from how they hit the drums, it comes from how they hold their pick. It comes from, you know, how they, they approach different sections. I, I mean, I, I see that too. Like the, the more successful musicians, even if they're not the most technically proficient or, you know, can't sweep like, you know, necrophagist or something like that, like they have a sound that sounds like no one else. And it just it comes from them, like their their body. And I, I, it took me a long time to understand that. I mean, really, even to like maybe the last five years, I downplayed that. I was like, nah, it's about the amp. It's about how you dial in the amp. It's about where I put this 57. And I was like, yeah, that shit's important too. But, but the truly great stuff, the things that make a mark on music that surprise people, most of that really comes from the musician and, and you know, how you as a producer kind of push him to, to bring that stuff out. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. some bands just start playing music and it sounds like it sounds. And I, mm-hmm. I always use the example of Foo Fighters, you know, they, they choose the guitars and the amps and the beats and the chords and the melodies. And when you put all that stuff together, that's what they sound like. And there's not a lot of yeah. trickery going on there <laughs> nope. or, or, yeah. well, manufacturing i guess you could say yeah well take those same chords and beats and melodies and put them in the hands of a cover band who might actually be technically better and still won't sound as good or the same at all right music's the sum of all the parts and uh you know with different people you're, you're missing a big chunk of that especially with certain kinds of music rock really being one of them you know it's it's i think rock should show more of that personality and more of that individual kind of contribution, you know, from the players that gives it that like special thing that can push a band to the front, you know? So what are some of your tricks then for being able to keep that intact, you know, the artistic vision intact, but also keep the songs capable of being clear? Because for instance, sometimes a really artistic arrangement that's multi-layered that's also got blast beats and double bass and you know brutal vocals and multi-layered guitars and leads and distorted bass like that can get pretty daunting to keep clear yeah yeah so how do you uh, do you have any tricks for negotiating 
both both ends of the spectrum? Uh, you know, I don't I don't know if I'd call them tricks. Um, I, I really just try and approach or just methodology. That's probably more along the lines of of my thing of just trying to look at each project, you know, independently of the last thing and the next thing I'm going to work on. I like the the width of styles that I end up doing here are is really wide. I mean, everything from like local stuff that's almost bordering on like indie rock to the extreme cattle side of things, cephalic side of things to the the completely different extreme side of like some, some really intense black metal stuff that I work on often. And uh, like another band that I do called Primitive Man on Relapse, it's like super dirty dirge doom that's just supposed to sound like horrific and Hey, here's a quick question based off that. Dave, when you're doing black metal, do they come in in corpse paint and regulation black metal spikes or what? <laughs> no, not, not typically. Uh, you know, but I that ha- disappoints me. I, I have had guys, uh, you know, uh, light candles and burn sulfur in the live room while they're tracking All right, vocals. Now, see, and, uh, now we're talking yeah. because, like, I feel like if you're in a black metal band, like you have to come in in full attire, like battle axe armor and all that shit, or else it just isn't going to be like a true record, and you're kind of a poser. So <laughs> I just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> no, I, I mean, black metal in particular is like is actually like really heavy, drenched in the emotion and like the the thought behind a lot of this music. And on first glance, a lot of people don't really get that aspect of it because it's something you kind of develop as you get deeper into it. But I've been a pretty heavy black metal fan for a long time, and and it's it's more than most forms of metal like super emotionally driven and uh and you know state of mind while you're tracking that stuff is actually pretty important especially for things like vocals which everyone knows are kind of more emotional and personal you know to begin with yeah. but that kind of stuff is actually really important you know getting putting people in their mindset to give the performance that that the you know the fans want to hear that needs that needs to be there to make the album good so i, I told you guys my black metal story where i had to take the dude through a walk through the graveyard and then <laughs> yeah. lay, down, lay down plastic tarps so that he could cut himself and not, you know, stain my carpet <laughs> while we were tracking vocals. You know, I mean, it, it sounds it sounds funny and silly, but that's what the dude needed yeah. in order to get into the state of mind. I mean, that's a Yeah, they take that shit thing. really seriously yeah. in that genre. Yeah. And I'm pissed because I've always wanted to do a black metal band because there's a lot of OG black metal that I really enjoy and have over the years. And I just kind of like, I was always hoping I would get one through my door and I never did. Just like I always wanted to do a grindcore band and I never got to do one. I got a lot of like deathcore bands, but never a grindcore. And I always wanted like pig squealing sub drop, like fucking, (laughs) you know, just ridiculous. Prove your worth. Go burn down a church or something. (laughs) (laughs) You got to do something that whether it's work with another band that they consider credible or commit some crime or something <laughs> like it, it's it, yeah i've done too many pop mixes in my life in edm so i guess i'd be considered a poser uh worthy of being burned at the altar of the imp- frost mountain i don't know i'm uh, out of adjectives so uh, yeah the the black metal scene are very very big on their credibility yeah. so uh, to be accepted by it is a kind of a weird thing yeah. Well, if you're in a black metal band and you're listening to this, fucking call me and I'll record the <laughs> shit out of you. <laughs> so did you get into this to record metal or did you just happen to get good at it as one of the various styles you've... I mean, I, I got into it to record my own band, you know, which which was punk bands back in uh, high school, you know, early high school and kind of more morphed into... Uh, metal and you know like 
I mean, I played in a band a long time that was pretty much like straight and flames worship, you know, before that shit was really too big here in the States. And that's what it was. Just I was just recording my own bands and then other people would hear. I mean, we put out a demo that sounded 10 times better than anyone else's demo and they were like, whoa, where'd you guys do that? It's like, ah, oh, I did it. Will you record us? Oh yeah. oh, yeah, I guess. I guess I will. Sure. Yeah, you know, and then I, it was just like... Exactly what happened to yeah, me too. Yeah, just like, oh, okay, I guess I have a job now. And that's it. You know, I, I didn't I didn't do the college thing. I kind of just fell into this. I've never had another job. feels a little weird almost, you know, but I, I clearly don't want to trade it for anything. I get uh, kind of like spoiled sometimes and I have to realize like I record metal albums every day and get paid for it, you know, and don't have to... I, I, I think I would have so much trouble doing anything else at this point in my life. I'm just used to calling the shots and doing doing what I want to do. I really hope that this doesn't ever fail on me because I'll probably be fucked. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So say I'm in a band and I book time with you to record my album. What's what's the first step? What can we first expect from you? What what do you do first? Or how do you approach pre-pro? Or is it just show up and go? Like what? What's the Dave Otero step one? A little bit of both. You know, I'll have bands send send me demos and stuff like that. But I actually, unless it's a specific project where that's like part of the plan, and then I'll like go down and check out a practice or two, or have specific meetings about that kind of stuff. But that's a rare occasion for me. Typically, it's like you know, get your work done, send me some stuff. Half of that's really just to like keep them on the ball and make sure they're they're like working on things. I mean, labels do the same thing. You know, a lot of labels are like, oh, we're not going to schedule time or pay a deposit out to hear demos, and that's pretty much to like make sure the band's actually like progressing and working on stuff. And I like to kind of do the same thing because it gets them thinking about the the recording side of stuff and you know preparing for that more than they might have otherwise. But honestly, and, unless it's a deal where I am doing extensive pre-production, I try to not listen to them too much because I still want to have that first gut reaction when they're actually in here and we're you know laying down scratch tracks and making tempo tracks. And and if I hear something, I want to be able to like experiment with it right away. Hey, let's try this. Hey, let's drop this part out. What if we do this part twice as long? I, I want to be able to immediately make the change with everyone here, yay or nay, and then move on rather than hearing it two or three times, getting used to parts and kind of losing those those first initial reactions that I have. You know, I've kind of learned to trust those over the years. So really, and that's about it, you know, I, before I'm going to work with anyone, I need to hear some music. So they need to send me something. I mean, if, if they have everything recorded, it can be these days a YouTube video from a show or something like that. And then talk to the guys and see really what they're looking for, because you can hear, especially some unproduced music, say off a YouTube video, and take it in a lot of different ways. And me kind of having working with so so much different styles of music, I don't know if these guys heard, you know, this album over here that's really tight and slick and produced well and edited and very layered, everything's exactly as it you know should be technically. And that's what they want. Or they heard this other thing on, on the other side of the spectrum that's really raw. You know, I, I put the guitar player in the room in front of his amp. So, like, the chords are, are, are feedbacking in between things and a lot of one-take stuff. And, you know, if there's a little fuck-up, we'll embrace it half the time because it adds some grit, adds some, you know, human to the album. Yeah. So I, I need to talk to the band or at least, you know, one or two of the main guys and see what they're going for and, and then essentially schedule out some dates and then kind of plan it out. You know, I always got to have a, a talk with a drummer before the session uh, about heads and about his kit and then kind of everything else just kind of happens you know, as you go along. Let's talk about the drummer's kit for a second, because one thing I do is when 
a band is going to come in, I asked the drummer to send me basically photos of his kit from bird's eye view, front view, and two side views so that I can see where his cymbal heights are, yep. what the distances are. Is the shit all beat up? <laughs> does it look nice? Yeah. Like, does it make sense? Yeah, yeah. Or are we walking into a nightmare or what? Like, do I need to tell him to raise his cymbals now or what? Like, what kind of talk do you have with the drummer? Uh, mostly about his kit, the heads that he typically uses. Um, you know, I, I should ask for photos. It's a good idea. I might start doing that. Uh, but often tell me what it is. And you can, if you're talking to a drummer, you you can get get the idea right away if he's like into his gear or if he's like, uh, I don't know. I think it's like a like a Tama. Is that, is that Tama? <laughs> you know, then you're like, ah, oh, crap. Okay, you might be using the house kit. Um but I talked about the heads that they use, the sounds that they like, you know, snare tuning in particular. A lot of guys like want this big fat snare drum and then they come in, their head is like like cranked up as as tight as it could possibly go because they want that bounce. And I was like, well, you're about to learn a lesson and, you know, the real world's here. So um, <laughs> get that kind of stuff because I'll have them go by heads, you know, beforehand. And then I'll tell them like what my first choices would be and they give them a couple options, that that sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, most of the time I go with the same stuff, probably that you guys do clear emperors on, on Tom's. Do you uh, get a lot of pushback on that? No, almost not. I mean, I really, that's, I may be used to, and probably not even, not much ever. I mean, now I never do, because I'm, by the time people are coming to me and, you know, they're paying what I want them to pay or what I ask them to pay, that they, they understand that they should probably listen and take my advice and it's going to come out better in the end. All right. So, how long do you take getting drum tones? Do you take? Uh, does it just depend on the project, or do you kind of have a median amount of time it takes? I typically take maybe four or five hours, really, for drum setup. But that day one could also include, uh, you know, scratch guitars and tempo mapping and things like that, that. That might even bleed into day two a little bit. But I typically tell bands to prepare for no recording at least on day one and maybe even day two depending on how big the project is i found that even if you have like an hour or two left like in your day after you do drum setup by that point the drummer even from just sitting around and the tension and the the nerves he's just so exhausted that he's the he or she's not going to perform well so it's better even if you cut out a little bit early on day one just to wait until day two everything's set up headphone mix is dialed in tones are there you just you know get up in the morning, check tuning, and, and start hacking away at the tracks. Yeah, you know what? I feel the exact same way. There's been a lot of setup days or tone days where, you know, there's technically two or three hours left where we could get started, but my ears are kind of shot. The drummer's kind of shot from hitting single hits <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all day long. And yeah. it, it is better to just cut out early, yeah. go to sleep, wake up and kill it. Yeah, I thought, I mean, I've just had experiences where like, you know, the, the guy's already kind of exhausted. He goes in there because he just wants to accomplish something and he's playing like shit and, and we don't get anything that we're keeping anyway. And then he goes home that night and he's fucking pissed off. And, you know, that could go one of two ways. He can come back the next day and, you know, with a vengeance and, and kill the tracks or he can have, have just been broken. <laughs> and then you got to work him back up from that. Like, oh, fuck, I, I suck more than I thought I did. <laughs> So it's better just to not get their hopes up about recording and then, you know, 
just start killing it in the morning. Everyone's fresh. You got some coffee in you and you don't have to worry about setup or headphone mixes or anything, you know? So, yeah. So let's talk about guitar a little bit. You were talking earlier about how, you know, the best of everything always comes from artists that are highly developed in their own identity. But are there any basics that you impose on, like, say, metal guitar players? when they come to your place uh you know the standard stuff play clear um i'm gonna like watch your your intonation like not only like you know obviously we got to check intonation i usually i I check that stuff on all the guitars we're gonna use i used to have guys like you know go have your instruments set up and maybe i still will but it's almost always still off and i gotta tweak it a little bit in here anyway so that gets checked every time and then and then I pay close attention to like the details of their technique that they might not always hear to practice like hey you're fretting too hard hey when you hit this chord and you're stretching you know four frets with your pinky you're pulling that note sharp that kind of stuff make sure they're playing clear and I'll I'll sometimes throw a little uh toilet paper or foam or paper towel or something like behind their bridge if it's making noise or above the nut on their neck uh, a lot of times I'll go in there on specific parts. If we're trying to make something really clear, I'll go in there and like do active like string meeting with my thumb, you know, while they're actually taking takes to keep things from ringing out. A lot of that stuff, and then and then I'm like, okay, what pick do you normally use? Okay, well try this one. Is that comfortable? Because it sounds better. Maybe for this other part that you're like, you know, shredding this uh, this chord really fast. Let's use a thinner pick so so it doesn't sound so choppy. Small things like that, you got to keep in mind to to have tracks that are not too noisy and that are in tune. And I've never like really felt that I was too much of a studio Nazi as far as like getting good takes, but um, that's what everyone likes to tell me. So so maybe I am a bit of a a bit of a do it do it again Nazi. I think that no producer realizes they're being a Nazi. They just have a standard. Yeah, that that's what it is. Yeah. And when something you know. Yeah, if something doesn't meet the standard, then do it again. It's I enjoy not... being a bastard. I don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> I, there's some there's some sick gratification in it, uh, but I mean, I'm not doing it to. I'm you know they know this too, and I'm sure I'm sure Joel, you feel the same. I'm not doing it to be a bastard. I'm doing it to to make their album sound better. And they may, uh, they, well, yeah, of course, they may curse my name like at the time, but you know when it's all said and done, that's that's one of the reasons why why they come to me and come back is because because I do get good performance out of them and I'll I know my you know famous famous last words are hey that's pretty good let's try one more time <laughs> yeah I have the unfortunate advantage of having played guitar for a very long time and taking it very seriously when I did play it yep. so when guys come in my studio they usually disappoint me greatly so I push <laughs> them harder than they've ever been pushed in their life yeah. yeah and it's fun. I mean, I try to do it nicely and sometimes aggressively, but yeah. I, you know, you always got to spin it positively at the end of the day, no matter how much of a shellacking yeah. they take. You got to, you got to work at each dude differently. You know, you got to kind of like, yeah, you got to figure out that as you go along. And a lot of it is, you know, they're just learning things that they haven't really paid attention to before. And it makes them a better guitar player. And there's a floating reference as well. I mean, you, you, especially if I'm working with a band that's maybe hasn't reached like the success level of of some bands that work with a local band or a smaller band you got to be realistic you know if you want them to do this real sweet thing and you try it a few times and it's just not happening you know you got to figure out when it's time to okay let's try something else or move on or you know or get that particular thing you know 
you know, a more creative way with some editing skills if necessary. But everyone has a different standard. And really, it's like it's like I want to take you to you know ninety nine point nine percent of your ability, and that's that's where that's what I'm shooting for, and that's different on everyone. So you know, what's the mo when someone can't get the job done? Do you uh, get someone else to do it, editing, do it yourself, like, or is it just different in every case? Yeah, it's it's different every time. It really depends on the band. You know, some some bands are like, okay, this just needs to be right no matter what. And some musicians are like that. If I can't do this, you know, the other guitar player can. And you know, with bands with two different guitar players, I start learning their strengths. And you know, more often on like the more produced side of things that I do. You know, one guy's going to be doing both parts because he has to be better at this, like, string skipping, you know, muting, not muting kind of thing that this part is. Maybe the other guy's better at these big chords and has the slides just right, you know, for this one section. So he'll do both parts on that section. Um, I love that. That's awesome. Because, like, I mean, I've had certain projects that I've done where I've had, like, one guy play all the palm mute chuggy stuff and then another guy play all the chords and... You know, I do anything that involves any sort of soloing because neither of them can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the only thing, I'm, I'm like a confident, you know, I'm probably a drummer first and foremost, but really these days I, it's hard to even consider myself a, a musician because I think about things so differently. But I can play anything. I mean, I, I can sing well enough to like, you know, to sing a part to a singer, a harmony line that we're, that we're adding or when he's not finding the note, I can I can rock the talk back mic, as I call it. Um uh, and I could I could play <laughs> drums, so I can I can jump behind the kid and show a drummer what I want him to do, a different kind of thing or an idea. And I could play bass, I could play guitar. So a lot of times I'll I'll show it, but I mean I would I, I'm a lot happier when they can play it better than I can because I'm honestly I'm not that great and I don't I don't play a lot. So I prefer to work with musicians that are better than I am on their respective instruments. But there are certain things that I like. I almost do every pick slide on just because I I don't know why I'm just real I'm really anal about pick slides. It's got to be just right. <laughs> it, you're not holding the pick well, right. A, an it, art to it. It, there is a super art to it, and it needs to be. That's like I just needs to be perfect. So I, I I'm with I, you. I, I do pick slides in in the studio for pretty much every band. But don't mess with the pick slide. Yeah. It's got to be perfect. Guy, I mean, it's, can it just usher in the part like like none other? So <laughs> yeah, don't give me this like limp wristed all over the neck kind of thing. What are you doing? Come on. Take some pride in your art. (laughs) (laughs) I've always considered those little guitar dick moves to be crucial. If you're going to do them, you got to nail them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, here's the thing about, well, I think this applies to any instrument, but I do a lot of things through the prism of guitar because I'm a guitar Nazi. A lot of people don't think about what the hell they're doing when they sit down because it's not intuitive. They just pick up and start playing. They don't think about how they're holding the pick or what angle or where it is in relation to the bridge and the type of tone it's generating. They're just like, dude, I just want to play this Nirvana song because I can learn it in five minutes. And that's something that, you know, like no one ever sits down and thinks about how to do a pick slide correctly until you get to the studio and meet guys like us. And then we show you and yell at you. So it's sometimes a rude awakening for a lot of musicians that have been kind of just half-assing it for a long time. And then all of a sudden it's like, all right, reality check. Now it's got to be, you know, A-list level sounding and competitive. So let's make this pick slide the best damn pick slide you've ever heard. Yeah. And they're like, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think a, a big part of our job as producers and if I could say I maybe have like any kind of natural talent, it's just the talent of knowing what something is supposed to sound like. In every scenario, I know if it's good or bad, and maybe what I've had to learn more along the way is like, okay, I know this is bad. How do I make it good? Those are things that you, that experience will teach you. But I mean, really, as, as soon as I started, had done this for a few years, I, I, th- I think I had a bit of a knack of like, 
well, yeah, that sounds right. Or nope, that doesn't sound right. Either that either it wasn't played clean enough or it, it didn't have this certain element to it. It's just like, I mean, even when it comes down to harmonies and, and you know, or, or adding little production flourishes, delay trails on certain things, it's, it's just it's just like, I just hear it. That's just what it's supposed to sound like. I mean, yeah. it, it's just there. We call that the ear, you know? The, I get the ear, I guess. Yeah, you know, so... But uh, yeah, if it doesn't sound right, then you, you know, change change something or do it better or or you know, fix it. It blows my mind that some people can't hear that stuff. But I guess that really is the ear part of it. And you know, like Joel was saying, you know, I just want to play a Nirvana song or I just want to sit down and do a pick slide. There, hey, I did a pick slide. It's like, yeah, I mean, I guess you did a pick slide, but it sounds like shit. You know, I mean, <laughs> like it's not what it's it's not what it should sound like. And they and a lot of guys like. That just never occurs to them, you know. They don't really. They never thought about that. Like, oh, I, I guess it does kind of sound like a pussy pick slide, you know. It's like, yeah, it does. Well, anytime you want to start a band that just does all pick slides, I'm in. You let me know, and we'll team up. Crit <laughs> <laughs> my pick slide, bro. So you ready to to do a rapid fire segment? Uh, sure. Yeah, I suppose. All right, cool. Rapid fire. So here's what we're gonna do, Dave. We're gonna call off a particular instrument and then you tell us for example how you record it or mix it or you don't have to disclose anything that you don't want to okay. if you have any like little secret chains or whatever but feel free to answer as in depth as you'd like okay. and the more you go the, the cooler this usually okay. is so all right here we go i'm just gonna call stuff cool. off kick drum uh as a whole um typically a uh what is it a d1 d6 what's the kick one Think D six, yeah. D six. Uh, typically yeah. a D six. Uh, you know, I've experimented with a lot of different R, different ones, RE twenties, D one twelves, but I like the D six the best. Usually front head off if I'm looking for a tighter sound. If it's a slower band, I'll leave front head on and kind of tune it to give me a little more resonance. Not a lot of processing on the way in. Maybe a little bit of EQ. That's one thing that's that's probably like the biggest difference between some types of bands and other types of bands. Some bands I won't use that at all. It's gonna be all sample. Some bands I'll use that a little bit and it'll be the primary, you know, or, or blended in. Other bands I'm getting more kick from the room mics than I are the close mics. That's definitely like a, a style discrepancy. Whether I've got like kind of a stonery kind of doom band in or you know a tech death band, but I'll usually probably put a, a D drum trigger on it as well. But with these days, you don't even really need triggers. Most of the time, you can do it just fine off a mic, but it's sometimes easier. So I tune it loose, too. Almost always, I try and tune it loose uh, to the to the point where it just has enough tension to sound like a drum. That's kind of what I like out of kick drums. It's, that's tough for some dudes, that some of, the, some of the trigger guys that rely on the bounce. If I realize it's screwing up performance, then you know I'll, I'll make concessions there. Okay, well, maybe we're not going to use this mic sound much at all, and we just need to get the performance. So. Sweet. All right. Bass guitar. Typically DI. A lot of times we won't even set up an amp while we're tracking. Um, that's that's almost kind of player preference. Some guys really want to like feel the whole building rumbling. But I'm always going to get a straight DI right out of the instrument. Uh, and sometimes I'll take a sans amp uh, at the same time. I use uh, Preflex a lot. The trick I learned from Joey like 10 years ago or something like that, however long ago it was. Uh, in fact, I haven't updated my UAD cards in like three years because as soon as I go to the to the next level, I lose preflex. <laughs> so I can't do that. Um, but most of my uh, final tones end up as a blend of preflex and probably a Sandamp driver. Sometimes a DI. And if it's like a more artsy band or a more open band, then there's going to be some mic in there as well, you know, on, on their rig if they have like a sweet kind of like sun set up or something like that. Sick. All right, heavy electric rhythm guitar. 57 on a Mesa Oversized. Done. 
<laughs> Love it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, a tip. Sometimes I'll throw another mic on there. I've for the longest time I shunned the whole uh, 421 on a on a cabinet thing. I just never really got it. I thought they were harsh sounding and kind of crappy. But recently I've been trying that again. I'm like, okay, it does add some cool stuff. You know, you play with phase a little bit. But uh, you know, pretty standard Sneep Forum special there. You know, a Mesa cab with vintage 30s and a 57 is all you really need to get to get a good guitar tone black metal growls black metal growls uh well <laughs> well there most black metal probably doesn't have a lot of growls in it it's mostly you know like the blah, 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 danny filth shit the higher pit stuff um or yeah you could i, I should have called it growl sorry i'm about to get raked over the coals for that <laughs> yeah we're, <laughs> we're actually gonna have to edit that out joel you're gonna lose your fucking cred i don't have any fucking metal cred anyways <laughs> Yeah, someone's going to make a necklace out of your skull for that one. <laughs> All right, brutal black metal church burning highs okay. down the mountain with lightning and shit. Uh, I, uh, probably an SM7. Uh, That's what I use on most of my heavy stuff. And even the higher shit, it, it seems to add a little body to them in particular. So that, and then most of my vocals go through uh, a UA 6176. And I will uh, squash the crap out of them, you know, 20 dB or more of uh, of reduction and really just kind of like nullify any semblance of dynamics and bring the breast to the front and stuff like that. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that's about it. I mean, I, that's the only thing I really comp like super hard on the way in is uh, is vocals because usually, you know, you can't really go wrong doing that. So Sweet. We got one more here. So who wants to know what? How about... Mastering EQ? Uh, a few different ones. Um, so I almost always have the massive passive UAD uh, emulation on my master bus. And sometimes I don't even use an EQ, but I picked it up a couple of years ago and I just love the way it sounds on the master bus when it's just turned on. So I will turn it on. and I'm with you on that. I got the hardware and I like just running it through it sometimes. Yeah, and sometimes I'll juice a little level coming out of it. And I, I, I sometimes, I don't know why I do that. It, it sounds cooler. It could probably just be the volume tricking me. But uh, <laughs> but typically I'll throw that on and then like turn the output a notch up. And then sometimes these for the low end or, or low mids, it's really nice adding that in a smooth fashion. doesn't get too boomy. But And then my main EQs these days, which I just kind of use across the board for like any kind of real EQing is the fab filter one fab filter pro q2 it's just it's amazing good. and i really i like my cues to be like i just kind of mostly like to have one eq for like all of my major stuff i'll throw another one on for color every now and again uh i, I like the new slate one what are they called this kind of silvery white ones that just came out the ones in vmr right oh revival no, it's like the the ones they just released when they came out with their uh, subscription okay, yeah. model thing. I played with those, and those sound cool. I've been using those lately for like color stuff. Like, hey, I want to add some like four hundred to this. You know, that's a tricky area to to add anywhere, and it seems to kind of like do a pretty good job at it. But most of my EQ, even my master EQ, is going to be uh, any real work I'm going to be doing is going to be that foul filter. All right. Ready for some questions from the audience? Sure. Okay, cool. They're very excited that you're uh, coming on. Jeff Sackick is saying, Dave's guitar tones are always crushing. I would like to know more about his EQ methods on that. Also, some of the super fast drum stuff he works with is insanely tight. Any editing tips and tricks on that would be amazing. Uh, guitar tones, you know, we kind of covered a little bit of that. Um, Mesa oversized 57. I mean, I've got a couple different cabs here and 
I don't know if I've used another cab on an album in like seven or eight years. I, it the, the Mesa Overtime just seems to always win for me. Every once in a while, I'll get a band in that has like a like more of a, of a sound to themselves, like you know, more on like the the doomy kind of stonery stuff that's getting popular these days. Those guys have their big crazy rigs with their um, fuzz pedals going into their orange amps and stuff like that, and we'll use those because it's it's more about capturing their sound at that point. But for the standard metal stuff. Uh, Mesa Oversize and uh, at least at 57, you know, right around where the dust cover meets the cone. What about EQ-wise? Uh, EQ-wise, pretty standard stuff. I tend to go pretty heavy. When I, I started using a plugin called ElectroQ back in the day that some of you guys may have may remember, uh, and it kind of got me addicted on not using knobs for EQ, just, just manipulating a spine and having typically unlimited points so i mean i'll have a guitar eq that has like 30 points on it and then sometimes i'll be like oh shit i need to do more but this one's like such a mess that i have to open another one underneath <laughs> so i get pretty <laughs> heavy-handed with eq sometimes that they're they're usually all you know not doing much more than uh, maybe two to three db except for like you know the main spots where maybe i cut some 220 or some 120 or something like that Oh, there's always a uh, low pass and high pass, and that's kind of dependent. But the low pass will end up somewhere between, you know, 7.5K, sometimes all the way up to, to 10 or 11. And the high pass will end up somewhere between 50 and mm, 65, 70 maybe with a pretty sharp slope on it. And then the other thing that I do, uh, which which is, is kind of treading – um, treading deep waters is is get in there and make some surgical cuts in the upper mids. You know, there's, there's always areas, you know, around maybe like 2.7 or 3.5 K that can get really harsh. And sometimes like a wide dip is is good enough to kind of tame those down. And then sometimes I will narrow out that cue super hard and kind of go fishing for, for those resonant frequencies that are just destroying my ears. And then pull them out a good amount, you know, like pull a sharp cue down 10 or 15 dB, maybe in a few different spots. But you do have to be careful because you, you can EQ the life out of your tone uh, really quickly doing that. So do a lot of AB. That's one thing I, I like about Electro used to do it too. Fat Filter does as well. You can select a couple of different nodes at a time and turn them on and off, you know, simultaneously. So you kind of check, you know, I, I'll go to those cuts and go back and forth and make sure that it's it's not removing anything that's important. And then you can also uh, adjust those like as a group too. So I'll, I'll kind of get my whole group and cut set up. And then if I need to back off, I can just grab them all and slide up a little bit to, to make them not as, as a steep of a cut. That's what I love about that EQ as well, by the way, because like you just said, sometimes when you're EQing guitars, if you're not careful, you can just totally just neuter them. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, it's easy to go because you become so sensitive to some of those frequencies that you hear them everywhere. And every everywhere there's like any kind of resonance, you're like, oh, that's got to go. That's not, you know, musical data. That's now just, we're talking. That's just buzz. <laughs> But you could you could go. We're to, gonna make a plugin that removes three point four through four K out of all of society because we 
fucking hate it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's, sometimes you can just totally neuter your sound. And I've, you know, we've all had those days where you just, you're super extra sensitive to those and you go through and you cut it out of everywhere, all your guitar tones, and you get that rattle out of your bass and you cut those out of your overheads. And then you listen to it the next morning and you're like, fuck, it sounded better the day before. You know, I lost all of the, <laughs> I lost all like the power, all the beef. It just sounds like this like scooped kind of like wussy thing. Or you listen to it and it sounds perfect. that's that's possible too that hasn't happened to me that much (laughs) (laughs) yeah i've never had anything sound perfect that's uh i guess if i ever have something that sounds perfect i'll just i'll quit and just commit suicide because i've 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 won life but we appreciate that you have the same hatred that we do for that frequency range no i'm real yeah especially in disorder guitars i mean i've i've pretty much no guarantee even if i'm just like eqing in a scratch track you know there's gonna be a a uh, high pass and a low pass, probably a cut somewhere around one or 200 and definitely a cut around three and a half, you know, 3.5. All right. So Mikhail Reeves is asking, how do you deal with the nightmare of producing a blast beat to sound good and not just good, but straight up gnarly? Uh, that A lot of that has to do with the drummer. The drummer's got to play it right. I hear like every once in a while I'll pop in on um you know a form that's got some some amateur dudes and they've got some program jumps and there's a blast beat and it comes in it's just like so overboard perfect and the drums are so loud that it i just immediately turn it off and i can't handle it that's one thing that you can't like just destroy people with a blast beat it leaves no room for like the rest of the mix that's a tricky part of working with fast stuff uh, drums in particular is, is you have to Play with your velocities if you're running triggers and make it sound natural. Make it sound like a good drummer, not a, not an inhuman drummer. And you know you got to have you got to have the takes there to begin with, and you got to be creative with kind of bumping volumes around. You know, I mean, kicks got to come down if they're playing sixteenth notes at two forty. They'll just destroy your entire mix, especially if you got a big boomy one. And on the faster bands, you, know, you got to go with tighter tones. I mean, it doesn't doesn't mean that you have to like high pass your kick at at you know 95 or something i'm not i'm not going to do that but if i'm blending samples i'm not going to pick one that has a big long resonance that's going to fold over itself and uh and kind of turn into a mess you know there used to be back in the day when i used dramagog from that kind of stuff there used to be a setting in there polyphony essentially is like the the basic midi idea but i think it's a it was a different setting in dramagog where where you could pick exactly how many samples would play over one another. So if they're a bunch of fast kick drum samples and say your sample's like two seconds long, you're not going to have like 16 kick drum samples playing at any one point. As soon as it hits the third one, it's going to cut off that first one. So there'll only be two at a time. Trigger doesn't have that setting, but it seems to kind of just do a fine job at it as it is. But that's something that you used to have to worry about. You know, if you have a, a bassy drum and it gets going really fast, it's going to fold over itself, you know, five, six times and you'll just end up with a huge mess. So I, I guess that's about it. I guess taking that a step further, Jai Benoit is asking, when tracking a drummer as fast and spastic as Dave McGraw, how do you know when you have a drum track that you can work with as far as cleanly editing them goes? Is it a matter of just listening to the drums and click together, constantly checking the grid to make sure, or some other method you've come up with? No, I mean, it's kind of that, uh, you know, and transparent parts, you know, on the old Cubase and Cubase just puts the lines like over the audio, which is kind of nice. So I'll kind of keep an eye on that. And I don't like, I don't care if a, if a guy is like rushing the part as long as he's consistently rushing the part. Consistently inconsistent. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Totally fine with that. 
Well, I guess it depends on how you think about it. I don't want it like consistent tempo fluctuations up and down. That's a nightmare to work with. But, you know, some guys just push ahead of the beat. That's fine. Most drummers kind of like to rush it a tiny bit because then they can hear the click. You know, it's that thing where like when you're right on the click, the click disappears and it's kind of scary. It's like driving on like an eight lane highway. And as soon as you're in one of your lanes, then like all of the lane markers disappear, but you have to stay exactly in the lane you're in, even though you can't see the markers. So a lot of drummers like to push it a little bit and it gives them that kind of like security of of hearing the click right after their beat uh, and then, you know, knowing if they need to adjust at all. But yeah, just using my ears, you know, and knowing what I can edit and what I can't edit. So kick drums are easy as hell, especially I think cattle's all sample. And I don't think I've ever used any natural mic. I mean, I always probably record it, but it's not blended. It's just all sample. So if there's a kick flub on a part, I could care less. You know, I mean, he might he'll, he might be upset with himself, but I don't give a shit. I'll tell him, focus on your hands. That's the important part. That's really what I can't separate uh, are your hands. So, And the faster it goes, the harder it gets. It really, yeah. I mean, if the kick's flubbed, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> or isn't it the other way around? <laughs> Depends on, on what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, I guess situationally dependent. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Phil Pluscott uh saying, When are you coming out with your own line of beers? <laughs> uh I don't know. Those that's kinda like a special thing you get when you record here, you know. It's like a it's like a perk. It's a studio perk to get some David nice. beers. I like your style. <laughs> actually, so. Yeah. You gotta save some of those, you know. But I that's actually something I haven't had a lot of time for lately, man. The studio, which is mostly good, uh, has been just like crazy busy. I don't. I mean, I don't have time to blink anymore. I just been like nonstop work, and I booked out like super far. So trying like when I get when it gets to the weekend, I just want to do nothing, nothing at all, or either that or I'm just still in here working. You know, when I have free time, I usually sit in a closet with the lights off and just like stare into nothingness. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm guessing that you brew your own beer. I do. Yeah, I brew my own beer. Okay. And I I was kind of real into it for a long time. It's gone to the point lately where like the beer nerds, especially here in Colorado, have kind of made me hate all of them with a passion. But I still uh, <laughs> I still love beer, and I have a lot of friends that there's a place in town uh, called True Brewing that's actually kind of getting some notoriety. They've kind of been in Decibel a few times because they they're it's like full on heavy metal brewery, and you know, they name beers after bands and. Uh, they bands that come through on town drink for free kind of stuff there and the dude's way into a really cool guy i met him before he opened and we've actually done a little music series together that's kind of just when we have time for it to where him and i pick bands mostly local bands and cover their recording expenses entirely and they come in and just do one or two songs and we release it for free on Bandcamp uh, just to kind of help them out and you know point point a little direction to both of our businesses and it's kind of a fun little thing and it, and we get to kind of pick bands that we want that they may not have either the cash or the you know desire I guess to, to come work here but they're usually all really stoked and typically turn into clients which is a, a benefit to me but um it's kind of a fun thing that we get to pick and, and just like cover a band. And it's got to be quick. I can't do it like a tech death band because one song will take a week and I, I can't just give a week out for free. <laughs> but uh, come in and do it. It's usually kind of like the dirtier stuff. And uh, done a, we did a, a track for a band called In the Company of Serpents. It's just like a two-piece guitar and bass, like baritone guitar. And he runs like four amps and with like, you know, bass amps and stuff like that. And it's just kind of real dirty, grimy stuff. It's pretty cool. And I get to work with some different things and we get to like 
feel good about ourselves releasing some some free music out there so nice nice sounds good well dave thank you so much for coming on and shooting the shit with us and yeah for yeah sure. thanks for being yeah, so awesome. open man and thanks for your time and definitely looking forward to you know what you put out next and maybe hopefully one day trying one of your beers oh absolutely yeah if any, any of you guys are ever in colorado then you've got a bed to sleep in and some beers to drink mandatory Sick. thank you thanks a lot man take care this episode of the unstoppable recording machine podcast is brought to you by joey sturgis tones creating unique audio tools for musicians and producers everywhere unleash your creativity with joey sturgis tones visit joeysturgistones.com for more info to ask us questions make suggestions and interact visit urm.academy slash podcast